This is kind of uh, Jesus part two from last week. We, uh, we leave our hero uh, with the crowds, um, and, uh, and we're off with a bang, which is often the case with Mark. One of Mark's favorite words is immediately. Um, he doesn't waste any time, uh, which makes for a power-packed uh, expression of the life of Jesus before us. And so we're picking up the story right after the feeding of the 5,000 men. Uh, and I'll, I'll emphasize the word men there, not because I don't think there were women and children, but because you may recall that this is just kind of a, th a theory, but I think it's, it could be useful that it may have been that some of the people, some of these men had some kind of militaristic expectation that this would be a moment when the Messiah would initiate his revolt against Rome. There's no way to know that for sure. The, the only reason why I would mention something like that is because it just highlights the fact that the crowd uh, is not monolithic in its expectation. It's swirling with people's thoughts about who Jesus is. And that, that's the key point. We don't know exactly everything they were thinking. That's just a conjecture. But something's going on here because Jesus wants to separate the disciples from the crowd quickly. And you'll see that immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side of the lake. Could be another indication that there's something going on in the crowd that is a little unpredictable that Jesus wants to manage well. Um, and so here, again, we can kind of get right into the thick of the story by emphasizing how good Jesus is at being a mature leader. I just don't want to skip over these details quickly. Uh, Jesus is amazing in so many dimensions. And so I want us to slow down again and notice the details and how they show the strength and maturity of Jesus as a man, as a leader. He appropriately dismisses the crowd. He attends to his disciples with discernment and clarity. And he knows how to manage himself. You know, it, it's kind of funny now that I think about it, just how uncommon those traits are in the leadership that we see before us so often in our country. Um, but I will uh, not allow us to digress too far on that point, um, except to say Jesus is really good. It's important to know this about Jesus, that he is mature and trustworthy. He's not abusive. He's the best of the best at being with people. So he also knows where to go for strength. He spent a whole day ministering intensively, miraculously, and he ascends the mountain to pray. He does not find prayer overwhelming, but restorative. And I just think that's a good point to note, that we should aspire to this. In other words, not, not to prayer as effort, but we should aspire to understanding this and experiencing this about prayer, that it actually can be restorative and not just one more thing to do at the end of a hard day. Jesus finds prayer restorative. Why? Because it's relational. He's actually with his favorite person, his favorite one, God, his Father. That's what prayer should be. It's an experience or an encounter relationally with God, our Father, and that's why Jesus finds it the, uh, the place that he wants to be after a hard day. So now we get into the context, though, for the challenge on the water. What is the challenge? Well, one way we can put it is that there's separation. And it's rather stark. The disciples get into the water, 
Jesus is on the shore. That's how it says it rather bluntly in, 30, in verse, verse 47. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea. Jesus was alone on the land. It doesn't seem quite right. It's like setting up the tension. Is this how we want it to be? You know, I, I mean, when you think about it, it's just so clearly stated. The disciples are over here and Jesus is over here. We know that's not the way it's supposed to be. Um, I hope you can start to feel your imagination quickening here in the drama. You get into it rather quickly. You ever feel like that? You're over here and Jesus is over there. This happens a lot in the uh, relationship between Jesus and the disciples. They wonder, where is he? This is a feeling of separation that's actually deeply, deeply woven into the human experience. Many of us has felt this kind of sort of separation from God. It's like an existential feeling of separation. And not only from God, from, but from with each other, for that matter. It doesn't seem to be slowing down. As we mentioned last week, it doesn't take a theologian to kind of hear the echoes of Genesis 3 in here, where very quickly after the creation of the world, things go painfully wrong on these two points. The relationship with God is broken, and the relationship with each other is broken. And now what to do? Not only that, but metaphorically speaking, it does feel like the headwinds we face are often so strong, and on our own, we're struggling. We're rowing hard, all right? We're, we're not sitting still, but it doesn't seem to be getting better. So you can see how, how Mark just so artfully and powerfully describes the challenge on the water here. But now all of a sudden there's a sudden change in perspective, and I find this quite touching and quite interesting. From, we get right into Jesus' own point of view. Isn't that amazing that we can get that close into the mind of Jesus here? From Jesus' point of view, we are not alone. Jesus does not perceive the disciples as being separated from him. He is compassionate about their feeling of being alone, but he knows more than they do about the circumstance. And actually, that's the advantage we have of reading the gospel. That's, that's kind of what we get as readers. This is how the gospel story works on us. We know also more than the disciples. We get to see Jesus seeing them. That's actually quite important for us to, to hold on to that. We see Jesus seeing them. Jesus perceives their predicament, even though they were not aware that he did. And that's just something to emphasize. We often feel like nobody sees what's going on in our lives. Uh, every one of us knows that there's that kind of hidden part in us that nobody sees. You ever write journals? You're a journal writing person. You know, you, know you, write, you, you write the journal that you're writing there, but you know there's a whole other journal that you could be writing that you'll not, you're too afraid to write lest anybody would find it. You know, we know this about ourselves, um, that there's a, there's a grappling with something inside of us that's hard to express, but that we know it's true and it's there. It's really, really important to know that that's the person, in addition to the rest of us, that Jesus really cares about. Um, Jesus doesn't ask us to kind of put the bad part to the side so that he can only deal with the good part. He doesn't care so much about that. He wants all of us. So Jesus perceives all of it. And notice here that Jesus' motives are not what is surprising about this story. 
In fact, just to be a little provocative and cheeky, I'd say Jesus is absolutely predictable. And I say that to kind of put us off kilter a little bit, like, ah, man, Jesus is walking across the water. Totally predictable. Like, Jesus acts exactly like himself all the time. I just say that to kind of tweak us a little bit. Of course, Jesus is totally unpredictable, but not in what he does. Remember what he said in verse 34 from uh, the account last week of the feeding of the 5,000. He's acting like the good shepherd. He's acting like the one who sees. The one who sees. That's God's name from ancient. 3,000 years ago, there was a story about somebody who didn't know if God saw. I won't tell the whole story, but um, this is a woman who is in deep distress and discovers that God does see her. And uh, there's a well there that's a symbol for her, and she calls it the well of Lahai Roi, the well of the one who lives and sees me. That's how God's known for a long time. So Jesus is acting just as you would expect. And Mark kind of slips in almost casually here in, in verse 48. Um, it almost sneaks by us here. Um, uh, he came to them walking on the sea. Oh, <laughs> okay. Um, you know, you'd think there may be an exclamation point or something there, but there's not. He just came to them walking on the sea. Jesus is just not troubled by the natural circumstances. No more than he was by five loaves and two fishes. It's just not what he's troubled by. Now, that's not to say that Jesus dismisses them. That's different. Again, I want to keep making that emphasis. Jesus is not dismissive. He's not saying to us, our bodies don't matter. Nature doesn't matter. Our engagement in the world doesn't matter. He's not saying he doesn't care. What he's saying is, I'm not troubled by that. It's not an obstacle for me. So he does understand and he does affirm and attune with our, our struggles, but it's not a problem for him. He just walks across the water. It's almost like Mark just expected him to do that. Now, it's not hard to imagine. Now we kind of move back to the disciples' perspective, okay? Now we're back. The screen, the camera turns towards the disciples. Not hard to imagine that they were shocked. In fact, it's harder to imagine anything else. Like, had they not been shocked, we would have thought they were odd, in fact, they were terrified. All of the dramatic elements are here. There's darkness, toil, frustration. There probably wasn't fog, but in my mind there was fog. There's mystery. There's fear. Why? It's a bit spooky. You know, this is kind of an epic thing. This is now not just simply a story about bad weather. This is a kind of a this is kind of an epic story all of a sudden. Mark is describing elements that are conjuring our memories, and that's why in our lectionary readings today, we have this wild story of the prophet, you know, going up in chariots and parting the water and things like that. This is mysterious what's going on here. We think of Genesis when the world was without form and void. It's kind of hard to translate that Hebrew. It, it, it's, it, it's just murky dangerous. The sea is a metaphor for chaos quite often in the Old Testament. You'll see that, you know, when, when the Israelites exit Sinai, the waters part, kind of a symbol of, Jesus, of God taming the waters. You have Job and Leviathan and, 
you know, the water is a strange and troublesome place. And you have darkness, which also is kind of metaphorical. You can think of, the, for those of you that may know this, that story, that weird story of Abraham sacrificing and then falling into a deep and terrifying sleep and the fire passes through. I mean, you know, the Old Testament is uh, it's a wild story. And uh, um, you get the sense that what Mark is trying to show is that the wildness and untamableness of everything is coming under submission of the one who made it. Remember last week we mentioned this, that the way the gospel stories work is to take everything the Jewish people knew about God and start to show how Jesus comes so closely aligned with it that you start to make the connection that maybe Jesus is a little more than who we thought. Again, now Jesus, turning to his actions, acts naturally and totally consistent. There's nothing out of character, which is what makes it so amazing. He came to them. Now, that's an amazing thing. It, he came to them as practically one way of describing the entire Bible narrative. Because from the very beginning, that was the problem. It was exile. Adam and Eve were taken away. And the whole challenge of Scripture was how would they be found? And the story of the Bible is not how human beings found their way back to God. It's how God found his way back to us. And you'll see that every step of the unfolding revelation of Scripture describes God coming ever closer until he does the unfathomable. He actually becomes one of us. Jesus came to them. This is true to his nature. This is actually God's name, Emmanuel, God with us. Now, this word pass by, it makes it seem like Jesus was kind of like skirting around. It, it really doesn't need to be translated that way. It means that he's passing alongside of them with intention. So he's intending to come to them, and he walks on the sea. Okay, this is, a, this is shocking to be sure, but it's just now, as you, as you know, it's not inconsistent for the one by whom the universe was created. That's what the opening to John's gospel says, that the word, Jesus, actually upholds the universe. He, is, he sustains it with his word. The walking on the sea is just a metaphor for his authority over it. He's not swimming out to them. The miracle isn't so much that just he's walking on the water. It's that he's an authority over it. And then, of course, Jesus brings a word. Jesus isn't a disembodied ghost, thankfully. I say, well, I'm going to digress there. That was a really a confusing point in the early church. Some people really did think that Jesus was kind of like a ghost. The gospel writers were emphatic that this is fully God and fully human. And so he brings a word, not to the sea. You remember other gospels say, you know, God, you know, Jesus says to the wind, peace be still, but he doesn't do that in this account. He doesn't bring a word to the sea. He brings the word to the disciples. He's more concerned by the storm in their heart than the one over the sea. 
That's right, why he's rightly called in the Greek term logos, the word, the word made flesh and dwelling among us. He's got something to say to us. And not something general and vague, but something absolutely and specifically aligned to each one of us. He brings familiarity. Isn't this a beautiful thing? That, that the disciples' first encounter with this figure coming across the water is that he's so unfamiliar. What could be more unfamiliar and uncomfortable than a ghost? It's like a, it, it's, it's other. A ghost is just other, but it's eerily the same, and that makes it even worse. Jesus brings a word of familiarity. He says, take heart. It is I. That is the most beautiful statement in the story for me. What else could you possibly want to hear? You want to hear that voice of all voices cutting through all of the overwhelming confusion. He says, take heart. It, it is I. It's me. I, it's not a stranger. And then he says what he so often says, don't be afraid. And you'll notice that whenever Jesus says, don't be afraid, it's always when he's already there with you. It's impossible not to be afraid. Just by, anybody who's raised children will know that you can't point you know, at the black dog running at you over there and say, hey, don't, don't be afraid. He's friendly. My wife and I were out for a walk, and a big dog charged us, and he did not look friendly, and I was afraid. And, you know, it was, does no good just for somebody to, for the dog owner to say, hey, don't be afraid. <laughs> you know, if, if I could have run around the dog, I would have probably tried to go tackle the dog owner. Um, you can't not be afraid. Jesus doesn't treat us like that. He comes to where we are first. And in the presence with us, he says, now, don't be afraid. And it's, and it's true. And it's Helpful to note that Jesus does go ahead and name the emotion. He doesn't say, hey, don't be jealous. You know, that, that's not appropriate for the moment. Jesus does know what you're feeling, and he's able to name it, even sometimes when we can't name it ourselves. Don't you ever feel like that a lot? You're feeling something, but you just can't tell what it is, but Jesus can tell that for you. And that's how it is that you become calm, simply by his presence, by his word. Now, the amazing thing here is that Jesus just gets in the boat. He doesn't ask questions. He doesn't even, he doesn't even speak to the wind. He just says, he just comes to the boat. He says, take heart, it's me. And he gets into the boat and it becomes calm. It's just so decisive. It's so beautiful. It's so what Jesus would do. Of all the things that happen in this story, he's the most predictable. This is how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit work in our lives. God sees. He comes near. He attunes with us. He speaks just the right word. He acts. He solves. I mean, this is what Mark just wants us to know. We'll get to some work at probably trying to apply this, but before we get there, just saturate in it. Mark just loves to portray, because I think, and he's right, and just portraying Jesus this way, it, he's so attractive. 
He's so attractive. But now I want to get to the disciples' struggle because it's not what Jesus does that surprises us. It's actually the struggle here isn't how did he do it. What surprises us is the extent to which he goes to reveal himself. That's what's surprising about Jesus. It's just hard to believe that Jesus is God with us. And that's what the disciples are struggling with. They didn't understand. It says the most terrifying words in scripture. They were hard of heart. I mean, if you want to do a word study on that, it's very important to understand the worst possible predicament is hardness of heart. It's Israel's number one problem in the Old Testament. And now it's creeping in again here. It's the worst condition you can have. The heart, the most sensitive, stubborn, fought-after territory in reality. I like the way one scholar kind of summarized it very succinctly. The heart is the innermost being where the decision is made concerning Jesus. And that's exactly what the struggle is for the disciples. The tip of the spear of God's entire nature is coming to a point specifically in Jesus of Nazareth, not an abstraction. And that's what the disciples are struggling to reconcile within themselves. And frankly, it's a problem without resolution in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark ends before there's any resolution to this. We'll come back to that in a minute. But it's not because the disciples are dumb. In fact, it's just the opposite. Friends, I, I want to be really clear here. If any of us were to put ourselves back in time with the disciples, we would not be able to keep up with them. Had we been there, we would have been coming across as very remedial. We do not know our Bibles. We don't know our history. We're morally flexible, if I could put it gently. All right. The disciples are devout. We're just so unfamiliar with devout people in our American culture that we equate devotion with simple-mindedness. But for Peter, for example, Peter was a sophisticated person, a sophisticated Jewish person. He was extremely well-read in Torah. He was well-practiced in obedience. He was sincere in his conviction. He was emotionally engaged. He had absolute integrity. Remember, Peter's the one who writes complex letters which contribute to our scripture. And in them, you will not find a shred of simple-mindedness. So it's not because the disciples are kind of bumbling. The problem is the opposite. No, there's an authentic challenge for the disciples in bringing all they know about God, which is a lot. They want to bring that together with this particular man, Jesus of Nazareth. This man who is doing what God does. That's what they're struggling with. Have you never felt caught in the grip of that kind of doubt, of being a bit overwhelmed by the magnitude of the revelation? I mean, we can all read our Bibles. Oh, they, doesn't that make it easy now? No, it, it doesn't make it easy. We, we become a bit perplexed in our attempt to kind of fit the pieces together. And I don't mean just intellectually, although that's a challenge too. But to make the pieces fit together with what we think we know to be true. The disciples don't lack aptitude what they lack is the capacity on their own to integrate their thoughts and experiences 
with Jesus. That's, that's what they're struggling with. You know, in, in philosophy, there's a, a concept maybe you've heard of called possible worlds. It's just kind of like a testing ground. You know, is there a possible world in which there are square circles? You know, most philosophers say no. Um, is there a possible world that, now, in literature, we call this science fiction. It's kind of a place to test out something imaginatively in a possible world. Why? It's to illuminate, perhaps, just a little bit, the world we're living in. Maybe by telling this imaginative story, we'll learn just a little bit about our own. I mean, no angle can go, well, let's see, I've gone 22 minutes and I'm about to mention C.S. Lewis, so I'm going to start <laughs> keeping track. You know, C.S. Lewis does, that. that's why he writes fiction, uh, non-fiction, or uh, uh, science fiction, some would call it. Let's test it out over here to see what it tells us about the world we live in. Um, I recently came across a quote um, from Man in the High Castle written by Philip K. Dick. This is not the, uh, the show, but the actual book. And you'll know that in this work, um, the, 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 uh, the possible world is that the Nazis win. It's, it's, as you can imagine, not a very nice world. But in this world, Philip Dick, the author, is playing around with moral conundrums that feel an awful lot like our world. He says, um, in this one scene, there's a Gestapo agent that is caught in, in a moral complexity that's difficult even for him in his morally deficient state, but it sounds a lot like something I think. This Gestapo agent is caught in a moral bind, and so here's how he reflects on it. He says, in some other world, some other possible world, there are clear good and evil alternatives, not these obscure admixtures, these blends with no proper tool by which to untangle the components. We do not have the ideal world where morality is easy because cognition or understanding is easy, where one can do right with no effort because he can detect the obvious. He's saying we don't live in that kind of world. That really speaks to me. I, I feel that way a lot. I don't have the equipment to untangle the components. Is that not true to life? Do you not resonate with the disciples who just are here overwhelmed with the complexity and the challenge and, and the, physical, the physical manifestation of it all? I can relate to all of these people, this Nazi guy, and I can't believe I'm saying that, but it's true, and, and the disciples. Cognition or understanding isn't always easy here. But then I think of Jesus walking on the water and revealing that the possible world of God's reign is breaking into this world. That the one who made this and all possible worlds is stepping and has stepped into the world in the flesh the one who made the sea millions of years ago somehow just walks across it just to step into the boat and say, take heart, it's me. Don't be afraid. I want to just acknowledge that it, it, it just takes time to bring God's world and ours together. But that's what he's doing. 
Jesus has come into the flesh to mend the rupture in the relationship between God and human beings so that we can experience fellowship with him in such a way that he can show us what he's really like to forgive our sins, to calm our fear. As Paul said in Ephesians, to know his love, which passes understanding. Just in closing, I'd encourage us in a couple of different ways. First of all, I encourage you to read this story slowly on your own, as though you were in it. And see what it reveals about your own life and your own encounter with Jesus. And just talk to him about that. And encourage you to remember a story from your own life where God has acted just like himself on your behalf. And, and, and remember it in specific detail. It can be something very simple. It's just a feeling you had looking at a sunset. Or it can be something very dramatic. It doesn't really matter. But remembering an, an experience where Jesus came to you and said, don't fear, it's, it's me. It's worth remembering that and asking him to reveal to you how he was present, not as, as an abstraction, but as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, guiding providentially, personally real, personally real, emotionally engaged, and then share your story with someone. Another thing I'd encourage you to do is, is to integrate your story into the liturgical worship and prayer. Liturgical worship is a kind of a storytelling. It's more than that, but it includes those elements. And the liturgy is that kind of grand story that we all share in. But let your imagination bring your own circumstances into it. When we shall see our Lord face to face, I'll, I'll say pretty soon. Imagine yourself seeing God face to face. Imagine being there at the table with him. Make it your own by letting these circumstances come into your liturgical prayer. Now, if this is hard for you to do, you have great allies in the story of the disciples. They were not dumb. They were human. We struggle. We get frustrated with God. We may find him strange rather than familiar. Let's ask God to send help. And I'd like to close our sermon today by giving Peter the last word. We know a lot about Peter. Peter struggled as a disciple to integrate his heart, which was large, his passions, which were strong, his failures, which are shameful. He struggled to integrate all that into Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. But God helped Peter to know him. God helped Peter integrate his life, all of it, the good parts and the bad, into the life of God through the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. So we're just going to let Peter have the last word and take comfort that what is true for Peter at the end of the story is true for us even now because Jesus lives in us and within us. I'm going to read just a few quotes taken from 1 Peter and then we'll... We'll close with, with that. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is 
inexpressible and filled with glory. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen.